Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd hoped to get this out to you yesterday, but just as I was getting ready to record it, we had a kind of a blackout here in uh, San Diego County and south and east of here. And uh, so we didn't have power for a while, but being prepared for such an event, uh, actually it's earthquake preparations usually, both my Kindle and my Magic Flight batteries were all fully charged, so I spent a very relaxing evening reading and uh, went through the blackout with no problem. And uh, so let's get started for today now, huh? See if we can make it through without the power going off again. And uh, to begin today's program, I'd like to thank Michael S. for his donation to the salon to uh, help offset some of our expenses. Uh, I really appreciate your help, Michael. And just now, as I was about to record this podcast, I was pretty much stunned to discover that we'd received a sizable donation from a surprise source. It was from longtime saloner Dr. Cameron Adams, who sent it in on behalf of the Breaking Convention, Multidisciplinary Conference on Psychedelic Consciousness, that was uh, held earlier this year at Kent University in the UK. And uh, Cameron, along with all the volunteers who worked on the conference, uh, and the hundreds of people who paid to attend the conference, well, you have all uh, made me practically speechless. I simply can't thank you all enough for your love and support. And as much as I appreciate you saying how much you get out of these podcasts from the salon, I hope that all of our fellow saloners realize that uh, these in-person conferences like Breaking Convention are the real key to finding the others and extending our worldwide community, the loving group of consciousness explorers that I like to call the tribe. Us uh, podcasters all do what we can here on the net, but getting together in person is the real key to our forward progress, I believe. And uh, Cameron, you and your friends are the best and uh, will always remain very dear to my heart. So, uh, I guess that I'd better start singing for my supper, as the saying goes, and introduce today's program, which is something quite different from what we've been hearing these past few weeks. A little while ago, my good friend Matt Palomary, who you've heard from here in the salon on uh, quite a few occasions, asked me if I'd be interested in podcasting an interview he was uh, wanting to do with Eileen Workman about her new book, Sacred Economics, The Currency of Life. And if you are also a listener to KMO's most excellent podcast from the Sea Realm, you may think that you've uh, already heard an interview with the author of this book, but that's not the case. As it turns out, there are now two new books out, just uh, with very similar titles. And while I'm sure that the book that KMO previewed on his podcast a few weeks ago is uh, also an excellent work, what I think sets the uh, one apart that is the focus of today's podcast is that it was written by one of our fellow saloners. And, uh, of course, I'm a little biased in favor of us saloners, as you might guess. Now, uh, while I know Eileen, and I trust Matt implicitly... I have to admit that I was a little hesitant when he first proposed this topic for the salon. After all, I wondered, uh, what does economics have to do with the things we've been talking about here in the salon these past few years? But Matt assured me that Eileen had something to say that would most definitely touch many of our fellow saloners. So I agreed, and uh, he did the interview that we're about to hear. 
And my guess is that you are going to discover, as I have, that Eileen's message is not only timely, it also goes right to the heart of many of the problems the world is facing right now. And I'll have a little more to say about this after we hear the interview, but as you listen with me to Eileen's story right now, there is one thing that I'd like you to keep in mind, and that is how important, how down-to-earth, everyday important, the proper use of our sacred medicines can be if we are to heal the wounds caused by life in the 21st century here on planet Earth. These uh, sacred medicines have been the major catalyst in my own life transformation, and properly used, they can also bring about much healing in your own life, uh, should you be so fortunate as to learn how to use them safely yourself. And as you are about to hear, they can reach out and touch people who are even deep in the mainstream of economic life in this land. Surprisingly, uh, many of the outwardly successful people we see around us every day are also beginning to question the system that they have become entangled in. And uh, when that happens, well, sometimes help comes from unusual places, as it did for Eileen. If this hasn't already happened to you, uh, what would you do if you came to the conclusion that everything you were taught as a child wasn't true? Well, that's the crossroads that Eileen came to after first becoming an extremely successful businesswoman. And I suspect that if this has happened or might happen to you one day, that you will find her solution of exploding the frame quite useful in your own situation. So now let's join Matt and Eileen and uh, hear about sacred economics. Hi there, gang. It's Matteo, and we're here once again for an episode of the Psychedelic Salon. I'm uh, pleased that Lorenzo has asked me to contribute once again as an interviewer, and I'm very happy to have another of my very good writer friends, Eileen Workman. Uh, Eileen and I go back about 18 years, and her husband Dave, and um, she's been working, she's done a lot of work, which I'm going to get into her bio here in just a second. Uh, I, I do want to, before I forget, I want to say hello to our, some of our brothers out there, hello there to KMO. And Brother Clint, Birdwing Butterfly from Down Under, and Adrian in Romania, and uh, Cody and Sancho from Blacklight in the Attic, and all you other brothers and sisters out there, all you guys who have been supporting the salon, and girls, and uh, sending in emails and things. We really appreciate hearing from you. I personally appreciate the uh, comments I've gotten. It makes it all worth it. So... uh, Keep up the good work, you guys. Donate when you can. Listen when you can. Share it when you can. Uh, we're all on the same page here in the tribe. And we're all working together. And uh, we're looking to change the world, which is part of what Eileen is about and Eileen's message is about. Um, I'm going to get into her bio here in a minute, but uh, her book is Sacred Economics. And Eileen has a financial background. I trusted her with all my life savings for quite some time and she did a good job for me and she's really gone through a personal transition from being very deep within the system I'm always proud to say uh, she really was a success as a woman in a man's world and uh, she knows her stuff so um, through what she's learned through her uh, explorations of consciousness and spirituality she's uh was in a position where, and she'll, she'll tell you more about this when she gets a minute, but she's been in a position where she was very much deeply embedded in the, in the roots of the system, money-wise, financially, 
And when she started to see a different perspective, I might say. You might say that. I might say that. Uh, she got a whole different outlook on things, and she realized that what she was working with, and she really it was not only no longer viable in terms of where it's going, you know, the whole capitalist system, but even personally for her, she just really couldn't do it. Once she realized and really saw the big picture, she, she couldn't do it anymore, uh, simply out of conscience. And the conscience, I like to say, came from consciousness. Uh, expanding consciousness in her case, which we'll talk about a little bit. Before I uh, formally introduce her, I do want to just read that uh, Eileen, Eileen Workman, is the co-founder of the Universe Project, and she spent 16 years working in the financial services industry, uh, most recently as a first vice president of investments with a major Wall Street investment firm. She lives in Southern California, here with the rest of us Californians, and uh, she lives on an avocado ranch, which we happen to be at right now doing this interview with her husband, Dave. And there are three dogs and a cat and a very raucous parrot. I think raucous is the proper pronunciation of that word. And I tell you, raucous, he's been pecking on my head all day. So <laughs> there is that. Um, Eileen has a blog, and they have uh, some publishing, which you'll see uh, Lorenzo posted on the website. But I wanted to give you her um, sort of official bio background there. And then um, I want to talk about, she has a wonderful uh, introduction here. Many of you have probably heard about Barbara Marks Hubbard. She's been a leading consciousness researcher for years. Okay, 20 years, 25 years, I don't oh, know. 40-something. 40-something years she's been on the cutting edge. And um, she's done a lot of real groundbreaking work. She's worked with uh, a lot of big names, uh, Houston Smith, I believe. Jean, she's uh, worked with Jean Houston. She worked with Timothy Leary. Jean. She worked with, um, oh my gosh, the names are escaping me. A lot of people. Jonas Salk, Bucky Fuller, Buckminster Fuller. There you Those go. were her peers. Bucky Fuller, her peers. So she's uh, very much been on the bleeding edge for years, even probably before I even knew what LSD was or anything else. Um, so she wrote a wonderful little intro f uh, for Eileen's book here, and I wanted to read it to start things off. She says, Occasionally in human history, a clear voice of good sense and compassion rises from the multitudes caught in the mimetic mud of obs obsolete ideas about current reality. We all know about that, don't we? Thomas Jefferson was such a voice when he stated, All men are created equal at a time when there was no equality at all. So now, Eileen Workman sends a clear and intelligent message. We can live beyond the current monetary economy better, longer, kinder, and more joyfully, and here is how to begin. Even though it might seem impossible, as the system continues to break down and the inequalities grow, her voice increasingly serves us as a guide to the next stage of evolutionary economics. We should all read it and place our faith and actions in the good sense it offers us, guiding us toward the next era of economics in the coming age. And again, that's from Barbara Marks Hubbard. She's co-founder and chairperson of the board of the Foundation for Conscious Evolution. So this is about evolution. This is about conscious evolution as individuals. This is about conscious evolution, um, dare I say, as a race. But as all you homies and homets out there know, this is where the bleeding edge and the conscious evolution of the tribe. 
So uh, without further ado, I'd like to formally welcome Eileen to this podcast of the Psychedelic Salon. Thank you, Matt. It's a joy to be here. I've listened to the Psychedelic Salon off and off on for quite some time, and I'm really joyful to have the opportunity to speak to your audience and share the insights that have come to me and that I'm hoping to bring forward into the world. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to get into a little bit of your background in terms of how you've come to your current mode of thought. But before I do that, um, why don't you give me your, uh, off the top of your head, definition of sacred economics, you know, as much detail as you'd like. Okay. Uh, Basically, where sacred economics comes from is the understanding, which I arrived at through a lot of pain and suffering, that what we call economics is a for-profit, monetary, I've-got-to-get-mine kind of a system. And my sense of it is that this is what's killing humanity and it's destroying the planet. And when I talk about sacred economics, what I'm suggesting is that rather than look at the world through an economic lens that is a monetary lens, that life is the lens that we need to be looking at the world through that we are all living organisms in a very, very wondrous, miraculous web of life, and that first and foremost, everything that we do should be done in honor of life, in gratitude for life, and with the recognition that without life, nothing else matters. And I see everything as alive and everything is sacred. And so from that base platform, economics, which is the understanding of how we're in relationship with one another, needs to arise from that space. And if we can come from there, then I think we can change the world. Wonderful. For those of you who are really paying attention, in essence what she's talking about is shamanism, uh, specifically in terms of the connectedness of all things and the fact that everything has life and and it's all connected and how one thing connects the other. Uh, Eileen and I have shared many experiences together and in even uh, in a, in separate times and places, we've had uh, major breakthroughs in consciousness, mm-hmm. which she mentioned about the pain, painful part. Uh, those of you who have read Plug, 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 my book Spirit Matters, I talk about particular breakdowns that I have had um, where, in essence, um, the uh, contents of my mind exceeded what my mind could hold and I really had a breakdown where everything didn't make sense anymore and I went through some very difficult times of confusion and when I came out um, dare I say I was more conscious I'll never dare say I was smarter but uh, more conscious and more aware of things I hadn't been aware of before because the old paradigm that I was living under broke down and it no longer worked because I knew too much to be able to follow that train of thinking and consciousness. And so after a period of painful confusion, um, I broke through and suddenly found myself in an expanded mode of consciousness that continued uh, and changed my life in a profound way. And uh, my whole perception of reality or realities changed. And nothing was as it seems, as uh, those who have been on the path know that the great mystery is truly and indeed a mystery. So Eileen had a similar uh, 
situation in her own way, and when she went through it, I was kind of sitting back from the sidelines with an understanding of what she was going through, because I've been through it myself, and it had to do with pushing the boundaries of consciousness uh, and expansion. Do you want to give us your two cents on that? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, for me, I would say for probably anywhere from six to ten years before I had what I would call a spiritual breakthrough, which was initiated by a breakdown... I had been seeking answers, studying consciousness, asking the very difficult questions, and challenging the conditioned programming that I had been raised with my whole life. And I had done everything right. I, I had you know, this incredible life. I was extraordinarily successful the way that the outside world measured success. I had a great business. I made a lot of money. I was you know, doing all the things that movers and shakers are supposed to do, and I was profoundly unhappy which created a lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and so <laughs> as you begin to explore the cognitive dissonance and say, what's happening here? Uh, you know, for me, the real challenge came, it's like what you were saying. I felt like I had built a framework, like a puzzle. If you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, you build the outside frame first, and then you gather all these pieces and you fit them in and everything fits really nicely. And that works fine, except when you're in reality and the framework that you've built you suddenly start accumulating pieces that don't fit in the frame. And for a while, you can sort of set them aside and say, well, maybe they're going to fit somewhere. I'll just keep building my little puzzle. And then the pile that's outside the frame starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it starts to make a sort of sense that doesn't fit with the framework you've created. And now there's just a real challenge inside, for me, a psychological challenge of what do I do? I can pretend like those pieces aren't there, even though they make more sense to me than the pieces inside my frame, or I can just explode the whole frame and start over again. And for me, that was the experience that I had. Is I really felt like I had no choice. I could not ignore the things that felt truer and more real to me than the things that were part of that original framework that I had been taught as a child and that I had carried through my whole life. So what some people called a psychological breakdown, I called exploding the frame. And I just threw it all away, went down to ground zero, decided that there was nothing I had been told or almost nothing I had been told as a child that was true. And I had to do the hard work of deciding for myself what was true and what was not true, what was real and what wasn't real, and what sang to my heart and what didn't. So that was a very painful climb back from sort of going to zero, as one of my friends says, you go to zero. And then from zero, you figure out how to, to emerge as a more conscious, more whole, more integral human being. And that's been the journey I've been on for the last four years. So what Eileen is describing, by the way, for your edification and edumacation, is what Stan Groff characterizes as spiritual emergence or spiritual emergency, mm-hmm. um, where you kind of lose it. It's also, uh, in shamanic terms, in essence what they call facing the jaguar, uh, mm-hmm. You face, you know, the, the one of the greatest uh, mythologies, so to speak, of shamanism is a shamanic dismemberment, and this is an act, in actuality, a psychological dismemberment where you face the jaguar. All these fears that you're avoiding come, and they they swallow you, and you do indeed get dismembered. I mean, you lose your bearing. You you think God's coming, or you're rapping with the aliens, you know, and next minute, <laughs> you know, the Mad Hatter shows up. I mean, it's it's pretty nuts. I, but when you come out of it you have a clarity that uh, is really difficult to articulate. Mm-hmm. You, you can't really articulate it because it goes into um, a lot of non-rational areas because your whole paradigm is shifted in a, in a big way. 
and expanded. Um, let me ask if I could step out of a little line here. Um, Eileen had done some inner exploration with help of some things, and um, she got the opportunity to do a, a few ayahuasca sessions, uh, maybe half a dozen, I don't know. I was Probably close to 10 or 12. 10 or 12 ayahuasca mm-hmm. sessions, mm-hmm. and I would think I was present at all of them. I think probably. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, uh, from my uh, observation by working with the ayahuasca, you, you were very much, um, prior to these breakthroughs, you were very much an intellectual person, very much in your mind. Yes, which, yes. Which is why you were a success in a man's world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, um, after having experienced ayahuasca a number of times, in essence, it opened up your heart, which had been mm-hmm. denied. My heart had been closed down for many, many, many years, yes. It, right. it, I had been wounded as a child and wounded as a young person, and, and I shut down that part of myself. So, yes, to reopen it was terrifying and beautiful and wonderful all at the same time. Yeah, which was similar to my experience. My heart was as hard as I get. Um and it shifted things for me. So, uh, and again, please correct me if I'm off base here at all, but um, in the essence of getting out of your head and into your heart, you really connected to a greater wisdom that opened you up to give you this whole new perspective of looking at things, of interconnectedness, and your whole idea of economics. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very fair assessment. My, my entire worldview shifted. My perspective on reality shifted. I can tell you my, my first LSD trip was the most heart-opening experience I ever had because it was the first time in my life that I ever saw myself as not a separate being. Up to that point, I had been incredibly separate. I felt isolated. I actually remember at one point beating on my head and saying, I'm tired of being in here all alone, you know, <laughs> pouting on both sides of my head like why do I have to be all alone inside it and these experiences both the the LSD experience and and, uh, ayahuasca experiences moved me into a state of awareness where I not only saw but I knew from the deepest part of my psyche and my experiential truth that I was inextricably interconnected to all things and that all things were alive and that I existed in, not as a being, but as an interbeing, and that I would not exist at all if everything else did not exist too. And recognizing that and coming to grips with what that meant, there was a responsibility that I suddenly felt toward all my kin, my brethren, the rocks, the stones, <laughs> the trees, the squirrels, let alone other human beings. Uh, you know, I saw every other human being as as if the the world was. If you wanted to say humanity was a giant hand and there were seven billion fingers on the hand and I suddenly saw every other person as another finger and for me to do harm to another finger on the hand seemed absurd because I knew we were connected by the hand and the hand was invisible to most people but for me it was extraordinarily powerful and very much present. So would it be fair to say that through the experiences maybe a little more so with the ayahuasca because it really opens up that it mm-hmm. really connected you to what I would characterize as cosmic consciousness absolutely so now you have a cosmic perspective yeah. that you can apply to humanity which you have applied to humanity in your mm-hmm. book Sacred Economics um, 
that gives you, uh, for lack of better words, an expanded perspective on the monetary system and the, the ills of capitalism and the world and trying to um, work together as, as, as one. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could elaborate a little bit on um, some aspects of... Uh, I don't want to say your theory is correct, but... Um, your uh, ideas behind it, like like, you know, I'm I'm glancing here at the, the table of contents from your book. I want to pick a few subjects, and if you could give us a little riff here and there, mm-hmm. like like let's let's talk a little bit about um, humanity and the money game. Yes, uh, I, I think where you know one of the things that I find so fascinating is that we were all born into this system. None of us chose it. So we were born into it and indoctrinated into the belief that money was the resource that we all needed and that in order for us to be successful or accomplish anything, we had to first get money. And it became this be-all and end-all in everybody's life. This is what we're out to do. We don't think about what am I going to bring to the world or how am I going to manifest the best part of myself to the world. It's what am I going to, I got to get a job. How am I going to make money? Because money is the conduit by which I get the things that I need. And this is a game that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And there are, there are a multitude of problems with the game, not the least of which is the fact that money has no intrinsic value. It's a marker. It's something that we've created that it, it really doesn't have any meaning whatsoever other than the fact that, you know, for me, here's, here's a good example. If I have money, I can't wear it, I can't eat it, I can't sleep in it, I can't do a single thing with it unless I can convince you to take it off my hands so that you will give me something I can actually use. So it's a Ponzi scheme in that sense. It's not a real resource. It's a way to convince other people to give you their resources in exchange for this thing we've created. And we all value the thing we've created, ironically, more than we value the resources. We're, in fact, destroying our planetary resources so that we can get more of this stuff, which is man-made, by the way, and can be made in limitless supply, so that we can all play this game of let me give you this fake stuff so I can get some real stuff from you. It's absurd on its face, but we never stop to think about what we're doing because we've been doing it since we were born. And the challenge that I put forth is, is can we step back from that for just a minute and look at what we're saying? We're saying we value this paper product that we're exchanging among ourselves more than we value the resources that we're decimating and that we're exploiting and that we're using it in incredible supply to make garbage so that we can make money. And I'm saying we don't need to make the money at all. We need to make stuff that has value, that really does stuff for humanity, that's beneficial for the planet, that's done in a way that is cognizant of the life force that is moving through all of us and moving through planet Earth, and that honors the resources that we're taking from the Earth and uses them respectfully. And that's a different game altogether. The the money game is a win-lose game. And another thing I'll say about it is that because money is a, um, a relative process. It's, it it's doesn't have any tangible value, so it's relative. The only way my money is valuable is if I have more of it than you do. 
Because if there's one item on the table and we both want it, if I have more money than you, it's mine. It doesn't matter how much I have. If, if you've got a dime and I've got a quarter, the item is mine. If you've got a dollar and I've got five dollars, the item is mine. So the relativity of the game in and of itself indicates that there have to be winners and losers. We can't both win. If we were to change the system or reconfigure a system where it wasn't about money or relativity, but it was about let's make sure everybody has what they need, we can design a win-win system where we're not having to do that competitive thing and worry about the relativity. We're kind of seeing that in the world today, I think, uh, in an extreme manner, like you know the whole sort of Middle Eastern uprisings in, in mm-hmm. Egypt and Libya. They've, the class uh, separation has been so great there mm-hmm. that the masses are revolting. Yes. Um, because it's just getting to be, un- it's just too much of a gap there. I fear that's a prelude for what we're going to see in this country. The gap in this country has never been as wide as it is today. Yeah. Literally 10% of the people in this nation own 90% of this nation's wealth. Isn't that amazing? 90%. Yeah. So that means the other 90% of the people are fighting over 10% of the nation's wealth. And that's an enormous disparity in terms of wealth. And the system is structured to make sure they get more. That 10% gets more and more and more. And if you look at what's happening in the political arena today, what you see is we're cutting all the basic services, all the safety nets. We're cutting education, funding for teachers. And you you take it to the extreme, and I heard Ann Coulter on TV the other day say that anyone that worked for the government was a drain on society. The assumption is if you are not doing a job that's generating a profit for somebody, you're useless. That's how far we've taken it. And I like to say, you know, I liken that to the notion of that would be like a man saying, you know, my wife, wife who's a homemaker, she's a useless drain on me because she's not generating a profit. But she's doing incredible things for that home. The government does the same thing. I mean, the government does the homemaking side of the nation. It makes sure that the water is clean. It makes sure that the land is taken care of. It makes sure the kids are educated. Everybody has a bed. The elderly and the sick are taken care of. It's doing the job of the homemaker. And we're denigrating that and making that into a bad thing because it's not generating money. In fact, it costs money. And the dad is the corporations. And right now he's beating his wife and making her look really bad in front of the children. So, in essence, what I'm hearing is that the dad is the pimp. Yeah, And the exactly. bitch ain't bringing home the bucks. Exactly, exactly. And so he's, he's beating her up. The, the corporate, I mean, And again, now, now this goes, there's a deeper element here that's at play. But if you look at it, the corporation is playing the father role. The corporate environment's playing the daddy role. The government's playing the mommy role. And who are the kids? The citizenry. We're, we're the children. And, and I think part of when we talk about this current evolution in consciousness, I think we're moving from a juvenile species into our young adulthood to where we don't need to be kids anymore. We don't need mommy and daddy, and especially because they're fighting and they're not, it's not very pretty right now. We don't need them to take care of us anymore. What we need to do is step into the truth of our own adulthood and discover how to be self-governing and, and self-disciplined and self-aware and self-actualizing beings. And that's what the evolution of consciousness is about. Very good. Um, it's funny, I, you know, I'm listening and making my own little sort of connections and putting it in different contexts and one of the things about shamanism is that in the end when you understand shamanic thought you come to understand that absolutely everything is energy Mm -hmm. so in the beginning prior to a monetary system 
uh, Cruck the caveman would go out and take down a mastodon with his homies, right? And then they'd bring it home and everybody would eat. And, and he was going out and he was basically getting a resource. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a, a direct thing. Mm-hmm. And then the women would gather the berries and the nuts and, and everybody got along in their own way. And then um, the monetary system came into play and we think in initially that money um, is an energy. And so we're taught, as you said, we we're all, you know, present day, we we're born into this. We pursue this energy which started out to be, and I want to, this is what I'm leading at because I heard you do a lecture on this. Uh, it started out to be backed by gold mm-hmm. and then, you know, there was paper money and then they were building printing presses and running the, you know, they've been running the presses over time for God knows how long now. And now I keep thinking about it and, and it's even gone from that into bits and bytes. It's digital now. Mm-hmm. It's digital. So it's, it's still energy in a way. Mm-hmm. It's digital, but it's still energy, but it's, it's electrons. Mm-hmm. It's bits and bytes, which are, you know, nebulous and based on faith and all that. So I was, maybe you could just give us a little bit of, uh, I, I loved, I heard the lecture you did, a little mm-hmm. bit on the monetary system yeah. and, and how it got how, how it started it and, and why we're so screwed now not sure. that we don't know that yeah if, if you go all the way back to, to some of the earliest incarnations of money when human beings became creative and this was in the agrarian days when we suddenly had surplus we had the capacity to create more and people began doing oh I'll do pottery and somebody else will do furniture and this person over here is going to you know do weavings or whatever and as, as we tried to barter those things, it became more complicated to do a bartering thing. If you wanted to go five people down the line and you wanted this thing and that other person wanted that thing and it didn't, you know, you couldn't make the trade happen, using money as a placeholder to value the things you were putting into the collective pot, you took your money out and then you could go take something else out of the collective pot. That was the way it was supposed to work. And at that point, it didn't really matter what you used for money. It was simply a representation of the good or service you were offering into the whole. So that you put your thing in the hole, you take out your value, then you go get something else out of the hole. That was fine. As the world got more complicated and distances got greater and people began to produce more and more things, uh, there was less of an amount of trust around what's the value of this thing that we're using to measure everybody's value that they're putting in. I don't know Johnny from three towns away. How do I know that he really got his money by putting something in the collective kitty? So let's use something that we all can control and we all can define and that's very, very scarce. And that's where gold came into being. And they minted gold coins and they made, you know, they put faces on them and everybody knew that that meant that the person had actually done something productive. So it was our way of checking and balancing, making sure people were genuinely productive if they were going to buy something out of the system. That was fine. But again, as the population exploded and we made more and more stuff, there wasn't enough gold available to monetize all the productivity of human creativity because we're infinitely creative beings. And the more people who come into the world and are building on the creativity that's already been in existence, it begins to to snowball. It mushrooms. So time goes by, more, more citizens do more things, and suddenly there's not enough gold. So what did we do? We said, well, let's let's just start to print promissory notes that the gold we mine in the future will be represented by this paper. And then we can put more stuff into the system so that we're not driving down the capacity of people to exchange things. Because that's really what money is. It's a currency. It's an energy flow of exchange. It's designed to facilitate the energy flow between people. So we can all produce to our maximum capacity and trade as good as possible, as freely as possible. 
So as that's going on, you know, and human beings are now up to a couple of billion people, let's go back to the 70s, suddenly even the promissory notes became dangerous because people were turning them in for gold and there wasn't enough gold to back the promissory notes and we knew we couldn't mine enough gold in the future to back the promissory notes, so we just threw the gold away altogether and said, let's not even worry about gold, let's just make these promissory notes. <laughs> so we'll just say that this is the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, whatever that means, and now we can make an unlimited amount of it. But we were making it not simply to monetize the goods and services that were in the system. We were producing the money and borrowing it from ourselves. This is where the first real real break with reality came. We began to borrow money to create the capacity to produce the goods and services we were putting in the system so that we could then exchange them. And as we're borrowing money, and debt or money only comes into existence as debt. It doesn't exist any other way. It's loaned out, and that's how it comes into being. It's birthed as a loan. But we never, we never loan the interest. We only birth the principal. So every loan that's ever made is made with principal plus interest. So when you add those two things together, what we wind up with is this enormous amount of money that gets produced, but nobody has the interest to pay it back because the interest doesn't exist. So if I'm going to pay back, if I take a loan from you and you charge me interest, I have to pay back the principal that I borrowed from you, plus I have to get somebody else's principal from somewhere else to add it and make call that interest. And if I take principal away from somebody else, they still owe that principal back plus the interest on their own loan. So the more loans we produce, the deeper into debt we go. There's no way around it. It's, it's an incredible hole that we dig for ourselves. So the more, and, and money is changing hands over and over again, and every time it changes hands, it changes hands as a loan with more interest attached. So right now, the amount of debt in the system far exceeds the amount of principal in the system. We've got a tremendous amount of interest that we all owe each other for the sake of borrowing, and there's no principal to cover it. So this is part of the problem, and, and that's how the whole debt system came into being. And to make matters worse, if we look at how the Federal Reserve works and how the banking system works, there's something called a 10% reserve requirement rule, which is the Federal Reserve lends money to banks, and when it lends that money, it allows the banks to lend out uh, nine times the amount that they borrow from the Federal Reserve. Well, they don't have it. It doesn't exist. It's, so they, they digitize it by creating a mortgage, let's say, for somebody. So if they have a, a million dollars they borrow from the Fed, they can lend out $9 million and keep that million dollars in their vault. And that's what they do. They make up $9 million out of thin air, and they charge interest on it. And so you're paying interest on invented money that was never borrowed from anybody. It was created by the banks, and they're lending this imaginary money to you at, at a high rate of interest. But if you default on it, they're going to take your very real possessions. <laughs> that's the way it works. So it's kind of a crazy system, and we don't even understand it well enough to realize that we're being had by the banking system. We never had to borrow money in the first place. We could simply monetize the creative capacity and the productivity and the resources of this nation, put a value on it, say, how much is that worth in every year? Let's make sure we have that much money in the system. We'll give it to ourselves, spread it out, and let's move stuff around. Let's create energy flow. We could do that, but that's not the way that we've backed into it. And is it correct? I know it. I'm pretty sure it's correct, but I want to hear it from you. The Federal Reserve is a private institution. It's it's a hybrid, but for the most part, it is a private institution. The stock of the Federal Reserve is owned by private banks. 
Uh, private banks have a guaranteed dividend as a result of the Federal Reserve. It does give some money to the federal government, but it is not beholden to the federal government in any way right. for its policies. In fact, its books are secret. Nobody really even knows who owns it. Right. You're not allowed, because it's privately held, you're not right. allowed to know who That's the bankers my, my are point. who own the Federal Reserve. Right. And the Federal Reserve came into being um, back, I think, in the 20s. And it was a result of the J.P. Morgans and the Rockefellers of the world who got together, the little cabal of them sat down and said, right. we, need, we need a private banking system to manage all these booms and busts that are happening. And the booms and busts weren't happening because of the money issue. They were happening because of capitalism itself, right. the, the problem with the underlying equation, which I'll be happy to go into. If you want to understand where so, the jobs are, I'll tell you where the jobs are. So it's about the Wizard of Oz and pay no attention to exactly. that man behind the curtain. <laughs> you don't even want to know who the man behind the curtain is. Right, right. So this private institution is basically inventing nothing, mm-hmm. and we're all trading on nothing yes. because we're so far removed, many times over, from, from the gold origins. standard, yeah. which is something solid and tangible that it really is kind of all based on faith. And, and the irony is, and the sad thing is, is that what money was originally intended to do, which was to be a flow facilitator of human exchange, of productivity, of goods and services, it's now become a barrier. Because without money, I can't even begin to create a product. I don't have access to resources anymore unless I can pay for them. And how do I pay for them? I have to get money. How do I get money if I don't have any resources and I don't have any goods to sell in the open market? I have to borrow it. So I have to dig a hole to be able to become a productive citizen, to climb back up to the ground, and then hopefully get up in the tree. It's an insane setup. That's why kids go into $100,000 in debt before they even get out of college. They're right. digging the hole so that they can become productive members of society. I say, why don't we just start at the ground? Why do we have to dig the hole first? Why are we putting every single human being alive on the planet today through the agony of having to dig a hole and climb out? And, and the deeper you dig, the higher you've got to climb. But that's the way we've structured our system. It, it's, it's absurd. Eileen for president. <laughs> I got too many skeletons in my yeah, closet. Well, hey, she, of course, I'm honest about them. That's the whole point, I inhaled. Isn't it? I admit it. Yep, she inhaled. She wasn't hanging around with Bill Clinton, that's for sure. <laughs> so, um, dancing around the subject a bit more, um, we have this vaporware monetary system of smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. that is initially originated from. Uh, energetic exchange. Yes. And now, obviously, it's way out of control. So the key is to, I think this is somewhat the basis of your theory, and you can elaborate on this, but I think the key is to to find a way back to an honest energetic exchange. Is that a good way of characterizing it? I don't like to use the word back because I don't think anything we should do on evolutionary is regressive. So I don't believe we want to go back to a barter system or back to an old way. I want to find a way through and a way forward. And to me, the way forward really starts from a higher level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It starts from the recognition that at heart, we're all connected. And that anything that I do to elevate you and enable you and empower you as a human being benefits me. And anything that I do to make your life harder or diminish it in any way diminishes me as a human being. Starting from that place is a really helpful place to begin. And I think this notion that we've all attached to is this this idea that we have to get something out of life, that we're here to get. And that's part of the capitalistic system. What's a for-profit paradigm? 
I profit at your expense. I take something that has a certain tangible value and I give it to you or sell it to you and take more than it's worth. That's what a profit is. Being, being a, treating me as a serf. I'm, tr- I'm treating you as a means to an end. Yeah. I'm not seeing you as an end unto yourself. I'm not no. honoring you. No. You're a means for me to get wealthy. I don't you're, even care what I sell you. You're capitalizing on I'm me. I'm capitalizing on your need. And in fact, that's how the system works. It capitalizes on people's needs. We've designed a system that's so integrated now and so advanced technologically that people can't get by without money. You used to be able to. You, you know, a hundred years ago, if you didn't like living in the city, you just go out into the woods, you stake a claim, you build your little log cabin, and you could live perfectly well. You can't do that anymore. You have property taxes. There's no free land. You know, how long can you live without having cash in your pocket to fund the system? Because the system is always picking your pocket. You have utility bills. How are you going to run your iPod? You know, you can't run these things right. for free. Right. So rather than freeing ourselves up, to be more creative and be more social and be more loving and be more engaged, we're enslaving ourselves to the need to earn money, to pay our bills, to live. And that feeds the system, which is all about for profit, but it's harmful to the human condition. It's not what we really want to do. Most of us don't want to have to work from the time we're, we're 12 until the time we're 90, and now they're talking about raise the retirement age. Ironically, we're going to raise the retirement age at a time there's no jobs. Right. So we're going to keep the old people in the workforce, keep the young people out of work. How are they going to save for retirement if they can't get a job till they're 35 because the old people have to work till they're 75? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And they're not hiring the old people either. They're not hiring the old people. No, they're trying to get rid of them. Right. And, and so now what are you going to do? The safety net goes away and there's no job for you. Yeah. And it's sort of, well, too bad. That's the way that the system is, is working. And, and I would challenge that at every turn. The system is not designed or it was designed, and it shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't be focused entirely on making money. We should be making money, if we're making money, to better the human condition. Right. Not just better the self. Again, going back to the getting, you know, I, I have to get for me. And and the planet. Yes. And, I mean, because, better, because yes. it's all connected. It is all connected, and yeah. that's just it. You know, we, we, have, we have so distanced ourselves and, and disconnected ourselves from the planet that we actually think it's okay to destroy the planet in order to make money. You know, we've overfished the oceans, we've polluted the oceans, all the, all the things we're doing, the, the oil and gas that we're destroying. We're going to go through oil and gas reserves that took 250 million years to create in less than 200 years. We're going to blow through those. Yeah. Now, what is that doing for generations from now? Do we even have a right to tap into those global resources and, and swallow them all up in a couple of generations? So we can get a new big screen TV. Exactly. I mean, and the fact is, there are probably ways to do free energy, but it's not profitable. Right. If we were to come up with a way that people could tap into energy out of the air, nobody would want to, to fund it because yeah. the capitalists can't figure out how to make money on that. Until we can figure out how to harness the sun in a way that we can get it into a company and they can control that energy and sell it, they're not going to want people to put solar panels on their roofs. They'll make them too expensive. It's interesting, too, because you, you had me thinking also about the way that the Internet has changed um, the whole structure and paradigm. I mean, like like the music industry. Mm-hmm. It's a level playing field now, more or less, and publishing is going the same way. Yes, and so just this one piece of technology that everybody jumped on, and then you had the whole dot-com thing and the dot-bomb thing, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody was jumping on board. And who would have ever known 
that would have such an influence on the music industry and the public industry to, to basically level a playing field and uh, the the internet is the Gutenberg press of our generation. Yeah, it absolutely is. When it first came out, nobody knew the Gutenberg press was going to change the world, but look what it did. Right. And if you look at the internet, it's the same thing. I'm sure if people had a clue, certainly if, if business interests had a clue what the internet would do, they never would have let it out. Right. But they didn't know. Right. And what you see now, what the internet enables us to do, which is the most phenomenal thing that the internet has to offer, is you know the whole notion of, of a business enterprise is matching buyers and sellers, product and re- or, or resources, and, and putting these things together. And in a very, very large unconnected world that was hard to do but with the internet i can now match directly with you know i can put my book and i can i can talk to people who want to buy it i don't have to go through these giant publishing behemoths who take the biggest piece of the pie for themselves that's my point they're cutting out the seller and they're screwing the buyer and they're taking all this profit for themselves simply for the sake of making the marriage right we can make the marriage ourselves on the internet now we don't need the behemoth right so we can render them irrelevant we don't even have to fight with them anymore we can make them irrelevant exactly and that's what's happening banking is the one industry where that has not happened yet and I'm going to put this out there for anybody who wants to start their own business and become the next billionaire the first person who does an internet banking system where they match borrowers and lenders for really reasonable rates and they bypass the banking system altogether by using the internet sort of like an eBay for buyers for lenders and borrowers so that you can fund people's creativity and bring that genius to market and the people who have money and don't know what to do with it and are tired of losing it in the stock market want to go play that game. I swear that's going to be an enormous business. Nobody has stepped into that breach yet. They've stepped into the breach on the Internet and other services. But that's one that hasn't been tapped, and it'll be phenomenal when somebody steps in and does that. Uh, so on some levels, it's, uh, I don't want to say that the Internet's adding to the death knell of capitalism. That's too much of a over-the-top statement, but... It is helping to level the playing field and, and, and in its own way helping to narrow the gap between... Yeah, and I, th- I think what it's doing, and this, this I get from Barbara Marks Hubbard, is that, that crisis precedes transformation and that typically the tools that you need become available as you need them. And I think what the Internet is, it's going to be the tool that will help us through the chaos of the inevitable collapse because the collapse is inevitable. I, I said I would tell you about the jobs. You want to know where the jobs are? I'll tell you where the jobs are. China, right? <laughs> no. I mean, that's a part of it. But <laughs> I know. I'm being funny. I, the, the truth is that the the contract, the, the basic underlying contract of the current capitalist for, for-profit paradigm is that as an individual, you take your man hours, your energy. It's, again, it's about the energy. You take your energy, you sell it to a business. That business gives you capital, which you then use to buy the collective fruits of human labor. And that's been the contract for thousands of years. But what's happened in the last couple of hundred years particularly is the acceleration of the industrial age and technology and computerization and productivity gains. All of that says we need less and less human energy to build the things that we all need and that we're all using. So that breaks down the contract. Add to that, now you've got 7 billion people trying to sell their energy into a system that doesn't need it anymore, or needs very little of it, and you've got a huge problem, because what is it that bought the goods and services was the wages of the people that were working. Machines don't earn wages, and they don't use goods. So, you know, you look at that and you see the paradigm is broken down, 
And because corporations tap into the free market, if you look at the global free market for energy right now, human energy, they can immigrate anywhere they want to go in the world. I'll immigrate to China if I'm IBM. You know, I'll immigrate to India if I'm Apple. And I can tap into a very, very cheap labor pool. But you as a person, you can't follow that job. You're not allowed to immigrate. So you're stuck here surrendering your job to that, that cheaper labor force which is a very small part of what, you know, most of Apple and those other companies are all technologically machine-oriented anyway. So the jobs are gone. And they're also avoiding a lot of taxes. Yes. And, and he, well, here's the irony, is that for the last probably 50 or 60 years, the only thing that's kept the illusion of corporate profitability alive is the fact that the government has been creating safety nets and social programs and subsidies, and they're funding billions and billions, trillions of dollars into the economy, putting it into the pockets of the unemployed, the underemployed, the these you know elderly, uh, people who are poor, and that money goes right into corporate coffers because those people need stuff. So they buy stuff, the company makes it, and the government's paying for it. And that's what's been keeping the illusion of corporate profitability afloat. Yeah. So the irony now is what are we talking about doing? Cutting government spending. The minute you cut government spending, the illusion will be revealed for what it is because nobody has any money. Right. And what is the government? This is the other funny part. Where does the government get its money? It taxes wages. Right. What's collapsing? Right. Wages. So that's why the government's borrowing money. That's why it's going into debt. Right. It's trying to fund all these programs to keep the citizens alive. Not thriving, just alive. Yeah. And it's borrowing that money, and now the business interests are saying, we can't keep doing this, it's not profitable. They're so disconnected from the understanding of their own system, they don't even see that. Right. They have no idea that when they force the government to stop spending money and stop taxing, that the whole thing's going to collapse. They're killing themselves, and they right. don't even know it. I love it. Which is funny. I mean, <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> and I just sit back and, like Buddha, I'm going to wait for it all to come down yeah, and right. see what happens next. This is really kind of interesting. The only, the only bad part is there's human beings involved right. with real suffering mm-hmm. and, and real pain. And, and that's the part that, that hurts my heart to, to experience. Is if it were just a mechanical exercise, it would actually be kind of amusing. But it is causing a great deal of suffering. So I'm kind of going back to the same point mm-hmm. um, in, in a different way. But it's all about energy exchange. Mm-hmm. The model got completely distorted, yes, and it, so removed from its roots. Mm-hmm. And then through all of that, and even fueled by the the, for lack of better words, the greed mm-hmm. and stuff, the internet came into being. Yes, and because the internet in itself is a more efficient energetic system of energetic exchange. I mean, even emails, you can instantaneously. You guys, this podcast is going on right now, and you know. Um, Clint down under there in Australia, Birdwing Butterfly, brother. He's going to listen to it like instantaneously, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like that. It's like that. It's like that. Monetary exchange, I've I've always been blown away at the fact that I could be sitting on my couch with my laptop on wireless, tap a few keys, sit on my couch, and God, an hour later, a pizza can show up, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's magic. Mm -hmm. But it's also... Um, because it's leveling the playing field, um, it's been undermining some key aspects of capitalism, particularly, like I say, in, in, in entertainment industry and books. So, in terms of a better energetic exchange, um, that is where we, we're evolving towards, what we, whether we like it or not, even when we're trying not to, we're doing it to ourselves. Yes. Because that's a necessity. Yeah. So, 
this is a basis for your, uh, I don't want to say theory. Well, yeah. In fact, it's deeper than that. To me, this is the you're, you're touching on the spiritual piece of it, right? Which is that it's not an accident, right? Exactly. And it's not happening by chance. It's not random that all these things are happening together, right? I believe deeply that there is a consciousness underlying all of this. There's a collective consciousness. There's a spiritual nature to the cosmos, and it knows what it's doing. Yes. And it is evolving to a higher order. Right. It's changing us inside at the same time that we're faced with these enormous problems on the outside yeah. so that we can deal with the problems. Right. It's, it, it, but it's giving us a choice. Mm-hmm. Evolve or die. It's a very simple choice. Yes, I love that. You know, I'm going to get just a little bit off into woo-woo land here for mm-hmm. a minute, but there's a wonderful sound healer by the name of Tom Kenyon. Uh, Tom, K-E-N-Y-O-N. He's out of Seattle. If you get a chance, check him out. He channels the Hathors, which are, they claim to be inter, interplanetary uh, consciousness beings of sort of a non-physical nature. Everything I've read about them, everything I've read that they've said has been bang on for me. Now, interestingly, because some of, some of the wording you're using, it made me bring this into the discussion here. Um, they say that right now we're at a point of what they call a chaotic node. And a chaotic node is a choice point where you have uh, a multiple uh, choices that you can make. Now, also what you said, uh, in essence you were saying that, and Barbara Marks uh, Hubbard said this, chaos precedes birth. Just like you personally went through and I went through, we had to personally go through our own very painful chaos and birth in order to come to a new level of understanding. Mm-hmm. So, uh, these Hathors say we're in a, at this uh, chaotic node where we can choose. We can choose to try to hang on to what has passed and go that way, or we can stay highly aware and conscious and put our energy toward moving forward, and that if we do that in a conscious manner, then we will really be tying into the cosmic paradigm that is of a higher order, and we will flow with it. And though it may be painful and uncomfortable, it's going to bring us forward as opposed to, we're going to be swimming with the stream instead of against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would even say, if you were to ask me some of the principal tenets of this shift in consciousness, I would tell you that one of the tenets that I see happening is that for, I don't probably since we've existed, human beings have existed, in order for us to change, we've had to be repulsed by something. Again, energetic repulsion. This is so bad, I have no choice but to change. And I think because consciousness is expanding and human awareness is growing and the interconnectivity is becoming more apparent, what's going to be happening is we're moving toward an attractor field. Rather than me having to be kicking and screaming forced out of the current way of doing things, I'll be okay with what we're doing, but I'll be able to say, hey, let's try that because that might work better. Let's go forward. Right. So I think we're on the edge of that shift too, and that this may be the final experience that we have to go through where we're forced because we have no choice to change. Uh-huh. And we're going to move into the capacity to change choicefully. So from a spiritual metaphysical perspective, in essence, if you knock on spirit's door, 
long enough <laughs> with a good intention and an open heart, at some point, the knock gets answered. Oh, absolutely. And so... Maybe not in the way you expect. Oh, never in the, <laughs> never in the way you expect. But it does. And as you say, I love that uh, expression you used about the attractor field. Mm-hmm. Getting back to basically basic energy and energetic dynamics of energy, which is, yes. again, what shamanism is all about. Um, you're, if you're in that place of uh, openness and awareness it will start coming for you and drawing you in. Mm -hmm. And if you are hanging on to the old paradigm, you're in deep shit. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to get, in essence, torn apart. Because it just doesn't work anymore. It can't. It's getting overcome by something far greater and far bigger than what we can comprehend. Yeah. Uh, Is that a good... I think so. And... And I think even, you know, I would, I would go so far as to say that with sacred economics, the intention of sacred economics is to, to add to that attractor field, to set a vision of the highest vision of the greatest version of ourselves, right. is how I would, I would phrase it. That humanity is due to step together as a species and collectively design our grandest vision of our highest version of ourselves and aim for that. Instead of simply reacting to the things that aren't working, right. coming to a place and saying, you know, this is what we need to do. And then you're not clinging anymore. You're reaching forward. And that gives us the momentum to, to flow with creation, to move with the impulse of evolution, and to step into the flow of cosmic design. Whereas if we're trying to cling to the past and, and fix, fixate on it and, and rigidly hold on to it, it doesn't mean there aren't things in the past that aren't wonderful and that shouldn't be carried forward. But we carry so much baggage forward that we're weighting ourselves down. And you know we're going we're gonna to drown right. if we don't let go of some of this. Exactly, baggage. which ties in with the whole um, Hathor thing. I guess um, one more thing I want to hit upon a little bit is we've, we've gotten esoteric and we've gotten financial and we've gone... Back and forth. I'll go all over the map between the world. <laughs> you too, baby. Um, I'm wondering if you could give, like, you gave us in the beginning, you gave us a definition of sacred economics. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of sort of an example of sacred economics in action or a situation that, that in that situation can define how sacred economics works. How it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I draw a lot on biology and nature. That, that to me, you know, we're always waiting for the aliens to come down and tell us how to be. I say uh-huh. the aliens are right here. Right. They've been here. We got two billion years of alien life forms living on this planet that have been interacting in, in sacred way for all this time. I've met some of them. <laughs> we just aren't looking. Yeah. So I, I have taken, you know, deep inquiry into how nature functions and what is the feedback loop of life. And to me, genuine sacred economics is an indirect gifting system. That means that. My my role, my responsibility is to activate the highest potential within myself based on my passions, my skills, my talents, my abilities, my creative capacity, that which is calling me. And, and when I step into service to that, it's not work anymore. It's joy. And I want to bring that forward and I want to give that to the world and I want to give it to whoever needs it. And my role is to put that into the kitty and give it away and then take back from the kitty whatever it is that I need to feed that process. And that's how reality works. Human beings were the first ones that said, this is mine. You know, 
Mine. 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 I, I wrote this book. It's mine. I made it. You know, nobody else can have it unless they pay me for it. And I'm giving my book away wherever I can. I really, truly am. And I'm trying to make it as cheap as possible in the avenues that I have to sell it. Because I really am not interested in earning money. I'm interested in having these ideas out there and, and be a facilitation for discussion and an opportunity for people to have an attractor field and start to look at some different opportunities and, and ways we can do things. And I think the only way we're going to get through this is to begin to realize that we have to run our society the way we run a family. I don't, I don't let my kids come to the table and say, okay, there's a steak here. Who's got the biggest allowance? You know, and the, <laughs> the teenager says, I'll take the yeah. steak. You know, give Johnny the baby the potato skin. Right. I, as a mother, I wouldn't run my house that way. Why right. would I run a world that way? Yeah, very good. Why would I run a world that way? Yeah. So your your uh, your indirect paradigm mm -hmm. makes me think, as you say, of biology, where I've spent days and days and weeks in the jungle, mm -hmm. and I can see that uh, an animal dies, and the bugs mm -hmm. eat the animal, and then. Bigger bugs eat those bugs, and then the frogs and the snakes eat those, and then the bigger animals eat those, and then at some point it gets eaten and eaten up to the food chain until the big animal dies again and the bugs eat it. And it and goes back. It goes right <laughs> back. It just keeps going. Everything balances because it's it's reached um, a natural balance in the jungle yeah. between all these different forces that you may not see. You know, the bees get the honey and they're pollinating the flowers, mm -hmm. all that, and it's all indirect. It's an orchestra. It's yeah. a symphony. There, exactly. And there are two things that we have been taught to believe that I think are utterly false that make it hard for us to buy into that. The first thing that we're taught to believe is that there's never going to be enough to go around. That if we all try to give things away, we're going to get taken advantage of and there's never going to be enough to go around. The second thing we've been taught to believe is that if people aren't working for money, for reward, they won't work at all. And those are the two underlying, I say, false beliefs that make us afraid to let go of the monetary system and the need to measure and make sure that I got to make sure you're putting your work in the middle. I don't trust you to actually work if you're taking stuff. I, and you might take too much. I'm afraid you're going to take too much. So there's a lack of trust in each other. And that has been exacerbated by the capitalist system, which is all about trying to get more from you than I'm really supposed to. That's how I profit. So we've fostered that lack of trust in the system. And it's time we turn that around. We, we have to learn to trust each other. If we're going to work together, we have to learn to cooperate. We've got enormous problems as a species that we're facing, extinction-level problems. And the only way we can fix those is if we work together. Not compete, but work together to really address those fundamental issues. And I think the economy is one of the first places we have to start to turn things around because it's creating a lot of the problems. So to me, that's the linchpin. If we can fix how we're doing business with each other, change the nature of our relationship and how we're working together, then we're free to change the world. Yeah, how much in the end, as individuals, how much do we really need? I mean, I know for myself personally, oh. one of the greatest lessons I've learned in the jungle is how little I need to survive. Mm -hmm. And I know people there who basically live hand-to-mouth every day, and they're eating good, wholesome food, and they're working hard, and they're happier than people with mortgages and insurance payments and doctor's bills and all that. They, they live in that way, and it's a happier and a simpler life. So this whole idea of 
you know, 90% have not and 10% have is really ludicrous because how much do you really need to be comfortable and happy? I mean, you don't. But if you're greedy and you're raised into that and you think you have a privilege and you're, you, you're running away from yourself and you can't understand why life is, then you're constantly trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Then you're caught up in this illusion. It's fear. It's fear. It's fear-based. It's all fear-based. It's all fear-based. Yeah. And that's one of the things that they, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. try to keep you in is that fear mode so that they can keep pulling the strings and taking advantage. And they have more fear than anybody. Yes. <laughs> the they's we're talking about. That's right. They. <laughs> Those. Those. Them. And it's all us. I mean, ultimately, that's, you know, yeah. that's why I come down to. There is no, there is no them and us. It's all us. And, you know, yeah. the other is an illusion. The other is just ourselves looking back at us. It's, it's right. a reflection of what we all are inside. Right. So, um, I think this has been a really great interview. Um, maybe uh, you can give us some final uh, words of wisdom. Uh, again, Eileen's book is Sacred Economics, and it's uh, soon to be available, or probably by the time of this podcast. No, actually, it is available, isn't it? It's available Already. on Amazon.com in Kindle format, in Nook, in the iBook store, and it will be available in paperback uh, sometime in early August. Yeah, it's from uh, RightWorks Publishing. RightWorks Publishing. Yes. Um, so, yeah, if you want to give us some closing thoughts and some brilliant gems that we can all take home into our uh, when we go into our little... Mushroom journeys or whatever we're doing. Uh, some thoughts to take with us. I would say if I had to define one of the most freeing moments of my life, it was the moment after my spiritual breakdown and breakthrough when I quit my job. And it's what you were talking about, how much does one really need? In that moment, I had to walk away from all the security the my my future my retirement account my stock I, I had all this stock and stock options and I had to surrender all of that and the question I asked myself very seriously is you know if I have to spend the rest of my life doing this I'm going to die but the option if I don't spend the rest of my life doing this is I may have to eat out of dumpsters could I do that for the sake of my freedom and the answer I finally came to was yes. If I have to be a bag lady and live on the streets and eat out of dumpsters, I would rather live that way than spend another day living the way that I'm living. And in that moment, I was free. In that moment, I was free. When I surrendered it all and said, I don't care about any of this stuff anymore, what my heart is telling me I need to do, which is bring this kind of information forward to people and live my own life according to this belief system give away as much as I can and I do that I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily uh, joyful about giving things that I can to other people and we can all do these things there's so much we can give away that isn't monetarily oriented we can give away our wisdom we can give away our love we can give away our compassion we can give away the capacity for somebody to come stay in our home when they have nowhere else to go we can give away you know, fruits of our gardens. We can give away our old clothes that we're not using anymore. All these things that we have that we rarely think about, we can begin to exchange with each other just out of love. And as we begin to make those tiny little practices and shift our, our attitude toward other beings, not looking at them in terms of what am I going to get in exchange, but in terms of simply saying, by, by giving this thing to this person, I feel joy. Yes. This makes me feel good. 
just to give it away. No, no attachments. Unconditional. N- unconditional love. No designs on the other being. And the more we practice that, and the more joyful we an- joyfully we anchor in that as individuals, the more abundance our society will naturally begin to have. And, and that's really what I think it's all about: is is letting go of manufactured lack, because the lack is manufactured. It's man-made. We have plenty because we're all here. If we didn't have plenty, we wouldn't be alive. So there's plenty here. Very good. Uh, I can say that Eileen does indeed practice what she preaches, and uh, it is unconditional love. And I guess I can put my own little closing thought in here based on what you've just said. And uh, you guys have probably heard me say this before, but if you break it down to the bare bones basic, fear is contraction Mm -hmm. and love is expansion. And expansion, by its very nature, is unconditional because it just keeps going. And if you think about the broken paradigm of uh, capitalism and the whole thing of gimme, gimme, take, take, that is a contraction. It's taking in, it's taking in. It's selfishness as opposed to selflessness. So in the end, if you're always taking and you're in that fear mode of contraction, um, you're going to more or less implode and if you're in a loving, giving, compassionate mode, uh, you're expanding. So I think that's a really good note to end on. Mm. Uh, I'd like to thank Eileen for taking the time to uh, do this interview for the salon. And uh, once more, her book is Sacred Economics. It's Eileen Workman. Uh, you can find it on Amazon and Kindle and all that good stuff. And I'm sure Lorenzo's going to post it on the website, as he's so good about doing So thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to this edition of the Psychedelic Salon. And we really appreciate your support. And uh, keep at it, everybody. We're keeping at it. And believe it or not, as my good friend likes to say, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I thought that I was going to be able to get through today's podcast and not say anything about Burning Man, uh, the festival that just came to a rather spectacular end a couple of days ago. But just now when Eileen was talking about how good it feels to give something away with no strings attached, as you probably did yourself, uh, well, I couldn't help but to think about how successful Burning Man is in its feature of being a gifting economy. If you've been there, you know what I mean, and if you haven't been there, well, all you need to know is that Burning Man is not a place where barter is how things work. At Burning Man, it isn't unusual at all for a complete stranger to come up to you, give you something cool, and then simply blend back into the crowd. It's an amazing thing to experience, and very beautiful, I should add. So, when Eileen was talking about gifting just now, I had a flash of the whole world being like Burning Man, but without the heat and dust. (laughs) Well, at least I can still dream, huh? I guess that the only thing that Matt and Eileen left out just now is a plug letting you know that you can obtain a copy of her book at a discount if you go to RightWorks Publishing. That's W-R-I-T-E, Works Publishing, RightWorksPublishing.com, and enter the discount coupon number 11002PSS, and those are capitals, that's 11002 capital P-S-S. 
and uh, I'll put a link to that on the website along with the uh, program notes for today's podcast, which of course you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, also, as she mentioned, you can get a copy of her book on Amazon in Kindle format and on the Nook at uh, the Barnes & Noble site. Now, there's uh, one more thing that I feel compelled to comment on. Uh, it's a brief statement that Eileen made. And if you recall, at one point she said that she had been wounded as a child. And that is something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about lately, namely the difficult experiences that we all go through as children. It was uh, just two days ago uh, that the thought came to me that everyone, and I mean everyone, you, me, all of our friends, relatives, and fellow saloners, all of us have had some kind of difficult experience or two, or maybe many difficult experiences in childhood. Granted, uh, when I look at the children in Africa who are starving to death and the young people all over this planet who are unable to find ways to become the people they came here to be, well, from that perspective, my childhood seems like a happy fairy tale. And yet, there were some things that happened along the way that have scarred me deeply, scars that still fester and hurt sometimes. So I've come to the conclusion that every childhood is difficult, uniquely so, but difficult nonetheless. And I don't know if there's an answer to this eternal dilemma. Uh, maybe difficulties as a child are an important part of our growth into joyful adults. But first we have to somehow come to terms with the events that uh, brought us to where we are today. You know, I keep telling myself that past is past, and uh, so I try not to go back there very often. And when I do, I try to remember those old motivational speakers preaching that it doesn't matter what happens to you, the only thing that matters is what you do about it, how you react to it. And yes, I know that's just another platitude, but uh, press on, my friend, and my guess is that one day you'll be astounded at where you are and how your life has turned out. Never in my wildest dreams as a child could I have conceived of the life I'm living now. And largely thanks to you and our other fellow saloners, I have at long last found my own bliss, and uh, so I plan to keep on following it for as long as I can. Like you, uh, I have my good days and uh, my more challenging days. Uh, today is uh, one of the really good ones. Uh, one of the best, uh, even with the aches and pains that come with a body that uh, wasn't taken care of as well as it should have been when it was younger. But even so, uh, today is a really good day, and uh, I expect that tomorrow will be even better. And so my wish for you is that you take Eileen's advice and explode that frame you were forced into as a child, and then put the pieces of your life together in a way that pleases you the most. If you do, I'm sure that uh, we will all enjoy seeing the new pattern of life that you create for yourself. As the good Dr. Leary often said, think for yourself and question authority. And to that, I can only add the Bard McKenna's favorite saying, keep the old faith and stay high. Well, that's going to do it for today, and so I'll close the podcast once again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects uh, under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in some of the stories that may or may not have led you and me to where we're sharing this moment together right now, well, you can read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation. 
which is uh, available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And uh, you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>